it's the human side of it. Yeah. They're not a number. You know, you can't, you can't look at them as a number. Um, it, it, this is real people's lives. You know, my wife looked at me the other day and said, you know, do you realize how much you're affecting these people's lives? When I was a prosecutor, I didn't represent a client. I, the state was my client, the Commonwealth of Virginia, right? I'd go in, if I lost a drug case, I'd go back, turn around, okay, what's next? You're dealing with humanity here. You're dealing with humans. You're dealing with their, their everyday lives. And I can't spend all my time with them. But when I do spend my time with them, I want to get to know them. Hey, everybody, it's Jeremy Lynch and Landon Harlan from Obu Interactive. Today on Cases for Causes, we are joined by David Holt, a partner at Smith Law Center and Brain Injury Law Center in Hampton, Virginia. David's main areas of expertise include wrongful death, traumatic brain injury, trucking accidents, and medical malpractice. Before entering law school, David served as a police officer in Hampton, working closely with the training division where he developed protocols and training materials for police recruits. David is a graduate of the esteemed Career Prosecutor School in South Carolina. There he taught, collaborated, learned, and practiced all areas of trial and courtroom advocacy. He has also served as an instructor at the National District Attorneys Association and taught trial practice skills at the National Advocacy Center in Columbia, South Carolina. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Jeremy. appreciate you having me. David, awesome to have you here. I know we've had this planned for a couple of months and we are going to talk about a little bit about you, about the firm in Hampton, and I guess it's called the Greater Tidewater area of this area, Hampton, Norfolk. Is that right? Yeah. Welcome to the seven cities. We have multiple names, Hampton Roads, Tidewater. I'm in Hampton. I live in Norfolk, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach. Yeah, it's where basically the beach. Outstanding. If you were in San Diego and, and said that, uh, where are you from? I would probably tell you I'm from Virginia Beach. People may know where Norfolk is because we have a huge naval facility out here, but this is a, the Hampton Roads Tidewater area. It's we struggle with naming ourselves, I guess. Nice. Well, it's great to be here in person, also see some of this area. and Welcome to the hood. And tell me about your hood. Tell us a little bit about you, because uh, I understand you're, you've been in this area for Quite a while, a couple of generations. So yeah. let's hear about you. Yeah, I grew up in Tidewater. I grew up in Newport News, which is a contiguous city to Hampton. Right now, I'm actually, my office overlooks the, the Hampton River, and right out of the Hampton River goes into the Chesapeake Bay, essentially. And I grew up just down the road. My family actually is from the Hampton area. My dad grew up on Chesapeake Avenue. My grandfather built a house down there back in the 40s. A brick house down there. My dad, my grandfather owned a, a business here. His brother was the general counsel for the shipyard for years. So my family's just, my mother's father was a doctor. She grew up in Newport News. My father went to VMI. My mother went to Mary Baldwin here in Virginia, both in Virginia. They met and they stayed in the area. So I, I've really kind of been here all my life. I went off to college for a couple of years, or four years, thankfully, not five. And studied at Mary Washington. It's now the University of Mary Washington. Incidentally, my son is going there starting August 23rd, which I'm really stoked about. And they came back down here. I uh, I started working as a police officer at Academy. I was in the, in fact, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was in the class of 97C at the Hampton Roads Regional Academy for Criminal Justice. And that was in 1997. And really, I've been here ever since. I've been in Hampton, literally working in Hampton since 1997. Yeah. So I went from 
law enforcement to to law school, and and I was a prosecutor for a number of years. But I was a I was a cop in Hampton for about three and a half years before I went to law school. Interesting. So what got you into this type of law? Not just personal injury, but a lot of the specialization that the firm has with brain injury law. Well, I, I, let me back up a little bit. When I started in law school, or before I went to law school, I was I was a police officer. I'd known way back then that I, I wanted to get a graduate degree. So I wasn't sure what I was doing or where I wanted to go. And I was actually considering going down to Atlanta. Georgia State has a really great sports management or sports, yeah, basically a sports management school down there. I was just thinking about that. But I started studying for when you're, this is really not an answer to your question, but I'll talk a little bit about how I segue into this, All right. into this business and how I got into law, law school, really, from being a police officer. In order to be an instructor with uh, with any police department, and specifically where I was in Hampton, you had to go through about a 10-day course, a two-week course, and it's a police instruction school. And during that, you have to actually teach part of, teach the class some sort of legal subject. And I started reading up on Miranda, Miranda rights. Everybody's heard of law and order. You have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You hear it all the time in the movies in law and order, et cetera. And I started reading up on, so I was going to teach, you know, when officers should be giving Miranda, when they shouldn't, when it doesn't matter. And interestingly, this kind of segue later on in my career as a prosecutor, I, I became sort of a an expert in Fourth and Fifth Amendment issues. But so this is the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent is really where Miranda came from. So I started reading this case law, and there's a few progeny cases, so a few cases that led up to this big Miranda decision. And I was like, why don't I just go to law school? Yeah. But this is cool stuff. Like, I was really, I would, at the time, I was about three years, three and a half years into being a cop. I just met my wife, who I didn't realize was going to be my wife, but I just met her. And I was like a really, I told her, I started reading some of these, these case law and I said, I just, this is really interesting stuff. That was in like February, January or February of 20, of 2000. And I took the LSAT like the next month. Got into law school locally here at Regent University. but decided to stay local because I knew I'd already had four or five years of working experience under my belt. And I knew in talking with other friends of mine that had gone to law school right after college, they said, you know, your first year, you want to be your most comfortable where you are, your study habits, all that sort of thing. They just, you know, be where you're comfortable. And I didn't want to move somewhere. My wife and I, my now wife, back then was my girlfriend. We were getting kind of serious. So I ended up at law school and I loved every minute, of, frankly. But I, and I knew what I wanted to do. In fact, if I could go back to law school now, I probably would because I really enjoyed it. I love it. it was hard, but I really enjoyed the process. And my wife and I got engaged at summer school. I was in Europe. We got engaged in Switzerland. And so to end, now this is a very long-winded answer to your question. I've been in this area for a really long time, and I just decided to stay here. My wife was a coach at Old Dominion University at the time. She coached women's lacrosse. I didn't want to take her somewhere else. I thought maybe I'd get into federal law enforcement. I t- ended up kind of turning a couple of law enforcement agencies down because they couldn't tell me where I was going to go. And so I decided to stay. And out of law school, I went right into prosecution. In fact, during law school, I was a prosecutor for the Virginia Beach Prosecutor's Office as an intern. And I tried my first jury trial when I was an intern. I was a third-year practice certificate in Virginia, a lot of practice law under the supervision of an attorney. 
I'll never forget the prosecutor. And Scott, if you're listening, I want you to know I never forgot you. I never will forget you. His name was Scott Vacris. He was a deputy maybe back then in Virginia Beach. Uh, we were trying to grand. This is a crazy story. And I'm sorry, I'm getting way off of live. But here's the story. This guy, this guy was pretty ingenious. This guy stole a car, right? But this is how he did it. He would walk on, he walked onto the car lot of a car dealership. And when somebody was test driving a car, and when they came back, he was like, thank you for driving, you know, test driving the car. I'll take you and clean it up or whatever. And grabbed the keys and took off of the car. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so I prosecuted him for that. And I'll never forget it. I, you know, I was all like at notes and I had uh, exact the questions that I was going to ask of this is my first jury trial in front of people I didn't know, in front of a judge I didn't know. And I was, I was, uh, had, everything was all laid out. And I did the opening statement and it, you know, went fine. It wasn't a very complicated case. And Vacris gets up there and does closing arguments basically with a, a yellow pad in his hand and never really kind of thought about it. And I was like, someday I'm going to be able to do that. Someday I'm going to be good enough to do that. So I stayed in prosecution for eight years here in Hampton. And I was doing some pretty specialized stuff. I was working with the Peninsula Narcotics Enforcement Task Force here in Hampton and Newport News. It was actually the peninsula. So we <laughs> welcome to Tidewater. We also have a peninsula here, right? So the peninsula is made up of York County, Williamsburg, Newport News, and Hampton. And I was working on it with a, a task force of law enforcement officers that also segued over, segued over to federal law enforcement. And I was just talking with you guys about this, about the wire, right? The show of the wire. So I actually ran some wires and did some wire tapping cases. It weren't, they were federal cases. So I, I worked a little bit with this U.S. Attorney's Office. But I started getting into gangs, into gang prosecutions really heavily. Uh, a guy that he will say that he is a brother from another mother. Corey Sales was the head of the, the gang unit here in Hampton. And I started working with him on, and back to them, the, the gang statutes, the General Assembly had just passed kind of interesting gang statutes. And we weren't really sure how to prosecute under the under the language of the statute. So we were kind of throwing wet noodles against the wall, knowing that they're gangs, but the General Assembly tried to be careful about just labeling people as gang members, right? You could be part of a gang as part of your First Amendment right to, to be a part of a group, right? But when you take the next step of committing violent acts and furtherance of the gang, that's where I stepped in as a prosecutor and helped develop these cases. We had a couple of really bad gangs in this area. And when I was, I don't know, about seven years in or so, I, I went to my boss and Linda Curtis at the time, I said, Linda, and this is right around this time, Howard and Stephen, who are the brothers that own this firm, I'm part of the ownership as well, but they're the majority owners. Their father started this firm 75, 78 years ago. And I knew all of them. And I knew Howard because I went to school with his kids, high school with his kids. They approached me and wanted a, a trial lawyer. And I kind of thought about it. They needed a new trial lawyer for the firm. And my name had popped up on the radar, I guess, with them. And I was really into this case that I wanted to see it out. And it was a racketeering case, a RICO case. So some people may, may kind of think of a federal racketeering case involving the mob uh, up in New York or, or in Chicago. Uh, a lot of gangs now are prosecuted under the racketeering statutes, the federal racketeering statutes. Well, many people didn't know that we actually have a state RICO statute. It's the racketeering influence, RICO statute. And so 
I started looking into that statute and I wanted to apply it to gang members. And, and here's why. I had a bunch of murders and drug dealings and pretty violent crime that if you looked down them on paper, you would say they're not related. And I knew that they were, and they were the same gang or gang structures. And I wanted to piece them together to bring them under underneath the racketeering statute. I actually had to draw up my own jury instructions for that case. Howard had come to me, actually one time I was in court, and he was like, look, I, we're looking for a, and I knew about their firm. In fact, let me back up for one second. Stephen, and I'll get into Stephen a little later. Stephen is one of the brightest minds I've, I've ever met. It was my majority partner. He tried a case against Miller Oil years ago in the old courthouse in Hampton. And I was doing something in another courtroom. Why he was, it was like a eight day case or something over there in another courtroom, which was adjacent to the courtroom I was in. And I didn't put it together at the time, but there was a lot of activity going on over there. And if you're right, if you know Stephen, he, he stirs stuff up. He is a tornado when it when it comes to trying cases. And he's just one of the brightest lights out there. But back in the day, I, at this courthouse, there wasn't a whole lot of technology, but boards kept coming into this courtroom and all that sort of stuff. Well, I found out later that it was like a $12 million verdict. I didn't put it together, but that's the guy I'm now working for or working with. Yeah. And I wanted to finish this racketeering case up, and that's kind of how I got into where I am now. I tried the first, the, the best I knew at the time, and I still think it's true today, I tried the first RICO case, state RICO case in front of a jury to verdict. There may have been some other RICO cases that were pled out, but I took one, that one to verdict. It was a five-day case, and they, one of the defendants got about 148 years, something like that. It's a pretty bad case, and I'll never forget it. And I got back to my office. I drove home, you know, high on a kite. You know, I was feeling great. I, I really felt very proud of what I did. And I was like, you know what? I've done what I need to do as a prosecutor. I felt really good about uh, where I'd taken my cases and the victims that I represented in the Commonwealth. And then I, and I said, you know what? It's time to really kind of change my practice. I looked at, at three boys at the time. I wanted to send them to school. Uh, my wife was working for the state for who do you? And I said, you know, let's go explore this. And so I talked to Stephen and Howard and at the time they're a brother-in-law and I walked in there and it's a family firm. They've been around for a long time. They didn't even have a website at the time. You know, I just, they do how to try cases and really develop clients. Howard's been here forever. There's not a person in this city that you walk into that doesn't know Howard Smith. They convinced me to do it. You know, it just was one of those things like, okay, I see a different future for me now. I saw Steven's energy and that really attracted me to to him and to the firm. He's just one of those guys that if he walks into the room, the energy level of the room elevates. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know him, Landon, as well as I do, probably better than I do. But uh, he's just, you know, he's the kind of the guy you have a hard time saying no to. He's, that's how I ended up here. Yeah. Crazy. Him and his brother, Howard, they're definitely legends in this community. And you brought the legacy to it. It's great that you two yeah. got together. Now you're working together. So here, here's a little anecdote with these guys, too. They they grew up on Westover Road in Newport News. I grew up on Westover Road in Newport News. I grew up two blocks away from them. Now, they, they obviously had left by then by the time I was growing up. But we literally grew up on the same street, which is nuts. Right. You guys rode your bikes on the same street. I yeah. knew the area. Yeah. 
and they were all in the same families. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a small world, but they, they certainly taught me a lot for sure. I mean, between the two of them, they probably have 80 years of trial experience. It's crazy. So David, that's pretty interesting. You came from a very different area of the law and now you're working in brain injury, representing survivors of traumatic brain injuries, mild traumatic brain injuries, and however they've been acquired. I understand that's an extremely specialized area. There's a lot of attorneys that say they handle brain injury law. And I feel that there are major exceptions to those who truly do specialize. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about you know, whether it's the local area or even on a national scale. But can you tell me about what you feel are the most common oversights lawyers tend to make when they're meeting with a new client who's, whether they've been involved in a truck accident, car accident, or anything else that resulted in their injury? Can you talk to us about a few of the things you feel that those lawyers may make an oversight and they just try to move a case through? Can you help us understand that a little bit better? Yeah. So, Stephen, I would considers the godfather of traumatic brain injury trial cases, trying cases as a, as a traumatic brain injury litigator. You know, most, most attorneys don't know what they have in their files because they haven't asked the right question. They haven't spent the time with the clients to really get into the effect of a mild traumatic brain injury on, on them, on their families. You know, we've represented hundreds and hundreds of TBI clients since I've been here, and we call them survivors because they are survivors. You know, the difference between a TBI case and just a, even a cervical surgery case or a broken a broken wrist or broken ankle or surgery on a knee or, or shoulder replacement, you can see all that stuff on x-rays, right? You can see that on MRIs. You're able to, to show a jury or a adjuster for an insurance carrier or a defense lawyer, can't you see what's wrong here? They've right. got a bunch of pins and screws in, in their shoulder because of this fall or this accident. You can't do that with a mild traumatic brain injury case. So you actually have to ask more questions. You've got to really get into their lives. And, and I think one of the things we really specialize here in my office is getting to know not just the client, but everybody around the client, husbands, wives, daughters, sons, family members, people that work with them. They're usually the most subjective out there. And you can kind of tell when we first get a case, like Stephen will say in, in any trucking case is, t tell me how you don't get a concussion when a 65,000 pound tractor trailer hits you from behind or on the side. We had a case one time where our client kind of changed lanes into her and she swung in front of the tractor trailer and the tractor trailer pushed her sideways down the railroad for about a quarter of a mile. And imagine looking at the grill of a Mack truck sitting there in front of you. I mean, it just was horrifying for her. But we've taken cases where other attorneys just didn't know really how to manage a client like that because they're different. And you can ask any one of my staff members or anybody really here in my office that those with brain injuries are just a little bit different. And most all of them are very high, high functioning. They're working. They're, I, I represented a, a doctor who, who had a brain injury and she was a very high functioning physician but she had to change the way that she did her job. And if you don't ask those questions about how are you doing things now at your work that's different, if you're not having conversations with what we call collateral sources, there's, there's people that are closest to them. Because we try these cases, 
a little bit differently than most people do. We don't get our client up there to talk about how bad they are. We get about we get we ask the people around our client how much they've changed. And if you've got files in your file cabinet and you're not asking those questions when uh, when they've been hit by a Mack truck or dump truck or something's fallen in their head, you should be asking those questions because you probably don't know what you have. And we have trained our staff to look for the right things. We've trained our staff to ask the right questions and establishing those relationships. And I think I was telling you this before the podcast, I think most people with mild traumatic brain injuries don't really know it. And when they do kind of figure it out because other people kind of tell them, then they realize their thought process is more foggy or they're just not really going away. It's not getting better. So these are like symptoms. Maybe they feel like they have a concussion. Yeah, their bell's been wrong essentially. But you know, look, the literature is clear. Most people sort of, they get over it. They get better over a certain period of time. Three, some people say three to six months. There are a certain minority of those who don't. And when they don't get better, they don't kind of put it together that they've really sustained a, a concussion, which is a mild traumatic brain injury. And when they realize it, they don't want to admit it. They don't want to say that I have deficits in, in my thought process or, or what we call executive function, right? Frontal lobe, executive, that's, where that's where all your ability to juggle the bazillion things that goes on in your life. They don't want to admit they have those problems for a variety of different reasons. One of which is is because you know maybe they work in a place where they don't want to have to admit that they're struggling through work. Right. If you're not asking those questions, if you're not having those in depth conversations, if you don't have your staff following up with them on a on a frequent basis, you're going to miss stuff. And these cases are valuable. And here's why: it costs a lot of money over time to treat for these things. And and there's actually a lot of literature out there that talks about early onset dementia and Alzheimer's that's associated with traumatic brain injury, especially multiple brain injuries. So our job is to ask the right questions, to, to find the right symptoms and, and find that relationship with the client that they can open up with us about. In fact, one that we were just talking about the Federico, Shelly Federico's mold case we tried years ago, I text with her weekly <laughs> just about stuff and we stay in touch with, with them all the time. So. So David, understanding that brain injury is extremely complex. Most attorneys and even and even some doctors can have a difficult time understanding the whole story of what occurred and how that impacts someone. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it's tough, what you've experienced, and, and what you would want to communicate to someone who is a survivor of traumatic brain injury? So there's a lot of actually research literature involving ER doctors and nothing against ER doctors they're so busy worrying about those with gunshot wounds yeah. and, you know and, and, and setting broken bones and bleeding and head and, and really bad head injuries that when you go in there or getting hit by a, a tractor trailer but you're still walking talking and communicating fine they do a neurological examination but they don't do a very thorough one as you compare it to, say, a physiologist who our PM&R doctor, uh, a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor would do, somebody who is board certified in brain injury medicine, they, they know the more in-depth questions to be asking about a number of different areas involving their neurological system, right? Starting with your brain all the way down, you know, to your, to your spine and so forth. But your doctors miss it. It happens. 
We know that defense attorneys don't want to accept that. So we fight all the time against uh, defense attorneys who want to say the EMS, they didn't notice that you couldn't talk and, and you know, you were walking around and, and it seemed like everything was okay. You go to the ER and the ER says you have neck and back hurting you. Um, and then three or four weeks later, you're finally at a doctor who starts to really ask the right questions. And we have those relationships, a lot of doctors in this area. In fact, I heard doctors across, all across the country. I, I just established a really good relationship with a PM&R doctor in Oklahoma. And she's fantastic. She's a clinical director for a concussion for a brain injury unit out in a, in a hospital out in Oklahoma. And I could just tell within the first three or four minutes I'm talking with her that she is just a fantastic doctor because she cares. She, she truly, really wants to help these people get better. And so... Brain injury survivors, it's challenging for for them to really come to grips. And if you talk to a lot of the, especially the really high-functioning survivors who, who have very high-level jobs, doctors, lawyers, we represent lawyers, we've represented educators, university presidents. I mean, it, it's, they don't want to think that this is going to be something that's permanent. And so we help them find the right places to the right doctors, the right rehab facilities. Of course, the doctors are directing their medical care, right? But if you're going to, let's let's take a neurologist, for example. Most neurologists are going to check your neurological system. They're going to check for headaches. They're really dealing with sort of the vestibular system, your balance and dizziness. And then also maybe your eyes and they're looking at headaches and, and how to uh, reduce the amount of headaches and the severity of headaches, right? What's challenging for brain injury survivors is, yeah, you're talking about the physical symptoms, but you got to treat the psychological systems as well, right? And depression is a big issue. Anxiety is a big issue. We find brain injury survivors are splitting with their loved ones quite frequently. It breaks families up. Because if they're not getting into the right therapy and talking to the right doctors, they're not understanding the global perspective of brain injury. So their family doesn't understand. And they go home after work and you're exhausted. Like one of the clients I represented was, uh, I was telling you, was a doctor. She did what she did as a doctor. She was a fa fantastic doctor. She had to put sticky notes all along her white coat during the day. She would come home and she was gone. She was out. She just, she had nothing left in her at the end of the day because everything that she had was focused on doing her job. Right. And she was married and it was challenging with her husband. Right. You know, because they don't have the same relationship that they had before. How do you put a dollar figure on that, Landon? I don't know how you can necessarily put a dollar figure on it. I guess one of the things that I wonder is if you do retain a lawyer that can understand that, has that experience. And, you know, as you had stated before, communicate and speak with the rest of the family. I believe you you called it a collateral kind of discussion with these folks. Maybe yeah. you can also help those folks understand, hey, here's what your loved one is going through. Yep. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take some time. You're going to have to have some patience. You're able to communicate that. So Stephen... I don't know, 35, 40 years ago, started trying these TBI cases and got some really big results for his clients. This is long before I became associated with the firm. And he really kind of pioneered the trial strategy of proving that the person who was injured with the brain injury died and a new person has reemerged. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a, it's almost a wrongful death case, right? So you're really trying to convince a jury, 12 people or eight people or seven people, whatever it is, that you don't know that the person that this group of friends, this this group of work employees or people you worked with, this social group, this church member, and all the people that were in their church is not the same. And it's a constellation of things, you know, it's your eyes, it's your hearing. And I have a client right now, it's just, I had a deposition with her yesterday. She can't hear out of her left ear anymore. She got hit by a dump truck. So when you talk to her, she leans in with her right ear like that, just to hear you. Things where you and I take for granted, she now has had to change the way that she even looks to somebody. So when you first talk, talking to her, you're like, is something wrong with you? And so we, we help get her to the right treaters, the people that understand not just the physical, but the mental side of all this. PTSD is a big issue with some of these people, especially when you get hit by a Mack truck or a dump truck, or you take a bad slip and fall. You know, for some of these people, the world just comes crashing down on them. Trying to put that back together the best way we can as lawyers. I mean, look, I always tell my clients, I'm just, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a lawyer, but I can help you understand what your future is going to look like as best that I can. And my job is to help you pay for that future, right? Because the last thing I want to do is see you split up with your husband or your wife or, or your kids are running out on you because they can't stand to be around you anymore. Imagine trying to raise young children. Do we have clients that are like that? I have several clients that I have young. I mean, I've got one that has three kids that are young. Actually, I actually have one and I have one right now that I represent I have six children under the age of 16. She got hit by a tractor trailer. This is an out-of-state case, but imagine the energy it takes to raise children, to get them to volleyball, to swimming practice, to basketball, whatever it is. And then, you know, one time I asked her, I said, what are you doing for yourself? And she just lost it. She cried. So I couldn't talk to her on the phone anymore. She just absolutely lost it. She realized that she wasn't doing anything for herself because she was doing everything for her kids. And all of her energy was targeted towards trying to raise that family and none of it was left for her. My job is to help her. Hey, maybe she needs to pay for a nanny or pay for somebody to help her kids on a daily basis so she can spend a little more energy on on her, who she is and who she was. And by you spending more time talking with your clients and having experience in it, especially if you know, lawyers that don't typically do that, or if they're just trying to settle a case quickly, you get a sense for kind of picking that, picking that information up when you're hearing details like, oh, you have that many children. And I know you're going through the initial treatment to get well for a brain injury. And you could say something like that. Like, what are you doing for yourself? It's the human side of it. Yeah. They're not a number. You know, you can't, you can't look at them as a number. Um, it, it, this is real people's lives. You know, my wife looked at me the other day and said, you know, do you realize how much you're affecting these people's lives? When I was a prosecutor, I didn't represent a client. I, the state was my client, the Commonwealth of Virginia, right? I'd go in, if I lost a drug case, I'd go back to her, okay, what's next? You're dealing with humanity here. You're dealing with humans. You're dealing with their, their everyday lives. And I can't spend all my time with them. But when I do spend my time with them, I want to get to know them. A colleague of mine, actually, and from your neck of the woods, Bob Simon in uh, San Diego, he and I have talked about this. If you're not going to their houses or getting to know their family, getting to know who they are, I tell you who else is really good at this, this is Nick Raleigh. And his verdicts are astronomical because he, 
you can tell he doesn't take on cases unless he's he really believes right in in the person that he's representing and really believes in the cause. I mean, he's a big into in the medical malpractice area out there in California and helping change the laws out there. But that, that's how we look at things here, right? I mean, Stephen, I've never known a more passionate person just about people in general. It affects everybody around them. It's pretty cool. seems to be fairly contagious throughout the office of yeah. caring. I know I spent some time with some of the the team and everybody that just does the intake. People you talk to, you've been on the phone for 30 seconds maybe. One of the first people you you know you speak with, someone like Ms. Ms. Lemke. Yeah. yeah. She's very passionate about it. She wants people to get better and see what she can do to help them. And it sounds like a fundamental benefit that comes out of all of this is, is you all understanding what's going on with their families and really the whole story and what needs to happen with treatment in order to help these people get well and move on with their life. Yeah, because once we finish with their cases, I don't see them as much. When I'm in the middle of litigating these cases, I'm in contact with my clients like all the time. Right? I'm texting with them, I'm not going to say daily, weekly. There's a client that has six kids. I was checking out or just the other day. I'm like, how are things going? Because it's summer now. Right. Our life changes in the summer, right? Because all her kids go to school during the school year. And all of a sudden now she's got seven or six kids and, and herself, seven people that she's got. A, and she's a single mother right now. This is another example of a, a case where the, 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 the brain injury split split the family out. And she's 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 helping raise these six kids. I mean, they're doing it together, but she's not with her husband anymore. Because her husband was like, she's just a different person. She's flat. She's just... So I'm always following up with them. I've got a client of mine down in, in Louisiana now. She actually was in Virginia. She's a big LSU fan. And every time I, I see LSU come up on the sports or, you know, they're obviously big football, basketball, women's basketball is, and uh, baseball. I always send her a text just saying, looks like the Tigers do it well. That's cool. She's like, go Tigers. <laughs> cool. So, so different. Yeah, just, you know, it's important to me to, we, I don't know, it's almost like we establish friendships with these clients. Yeah, absolutely. So, David, I know you know Howard and you know Stephen from so far back in the day. You all share memories of growing up in the Norfolk, Newport News, Seven Cities area. Can you tell us a story about working with Stephen that really sticks with you? I've got stories about Stephen, whether it's in the office or out of the office. You know, Stephen's one of the brightest people that I know. Not just a litigator, not just a lawyer, but he's one of those guys that to, you don't really realize just what he consumes and remembers and then will regurgitate it back to you. And he'll use words sometimes. I'm like, my wife actually makes fun of the words that I use with her. He uses just off the chart SAT type words. And I just, I've come to realize that he's just one of the brightest people I know. And, and one example is that his mind thinks differently than mine does. And so I'm a very, I'm very organized. When I go to trial, I like to have, I used to try cases by myself when I was a prosecutor. So I never had anybody next to me. So, and as a prosecutor and now as a plaintiff's lawyer, it's our duty to put the case on, right? So we have the burden of proof. As a prosecutor, I had to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now I've got to prove it 51%, right? It's, it's called a preponderance of the evidence. So I just got to tip that scale, just a little bit of feather, right? but I still have to put my case on. Ty does not go to the runner. 
in civil cases. So I've got to put enough evidence on to convince a jury or a judge that my client is worthy of a judgment. So I, I get very organized. Stephen just is only, I'm not going to say he's fly by the seat of his pants, but he will digest medical records and, and depositions and so forth. And just, he just knows them. And I can think of two instances. One, one of them was in the, the Federico case. Was a, I was in trial for three weeks in Norfolk Federal Court. What was this case about? So it was a, it was a, it was a mold case. It was mold and military housing. So the, the, the company that we were involved in suing on behalf of about 12 or 13 military families, the main case, the stalwart case, was Shelly Federico and her husband, Joe Federico. He was a a sergeant, a chief, not a chief sergeant. He was a, he was, he was a Marine and they lived in a house, in a house that was full of mold. And it's a very, very long case and it's probably worthy of a book someday, but Shelly is an advocate and she's a wonderful person. Well, she's one of those that I keep in contact with quite frequently. We were in trial. It took about five years to get to the point of actually trying this case, and we had to choose the one case that we wanted to try first to kind of use as a bellwether case, right? And this is what that was. And I mean, in the middle of trial, we're in the middle of actually choosing a jury. We're in this kind of dark, huge federal courtroom. The judge is on the bench. He's up there, and they do they do it kind of a weird way in, in federal court, in, in this particular federal court pull a little slide out of the name and put it back down. And so we were trading back and forth of the names of the jurors that we were striking for cause, right? So when you strike a juror for cause, you remove them and based upon kind of what they've told us, and then you have peremptory strikes. And those are the strikes that, that we get that we just, for whatever reason we want, we can remove a juror. Well, I'm sitting there getting ready. Literally, I had the first witness. <laughs> so I, once, after opening statements, we were getting ready to go right in the witness. So I'm focused on what I'm doing, and I'm seeing him scribbling. He's literally sitting right next to me. And they struck their last juror. And I wasn't quite paying attention to what he was doing because I was paying attention to it. But, but I see him, and, and Stephen just, his mind works a thousand miles an hour. And I see him look up and look down and look up and look down, and he goes, it's like that. And he's like, stood straight up and he's like, objection, objection, objection. And he's hitting me, <laughs> waking me up. And he's like, what's that case? What's that case where they, if they strike, strike somebody for race, blah, blah, blah. I was like, Batson? And I was a prosecutor for years and I, I'd had Batson motions against me. And I've used, so a Batson motion is essentially is that you can't remove a juror for cause or for a peremptory strike. Based upon race, it has to be a race-neutral reason to remove a juror. So Batson's like the rule in the courtroom. Yeah, so that's the case. It's the, the case is, was Batson. I want to say it was a Massachusetts case. It's been a while since I read the case, but so the name of it is Batson. So you make a Batson motion, and the motion essentially is: is the, the other person is removed, the other side, the other lawyer that you're against is removing somebody based upon race, and which is is not a lawful way to remove somebody from your jury. That's how Steven's mind works. Like he never, I never would have considered that because at first of all, I thought it was just in the criminal sense, right? Because he has 12 jurors in a criminal jury. We had, I don't know, we were trying to pick seven in the federal jury, but it never occurred to me, you have to be able to show that there's a, a, something other than race that you're removing somebody. So he, he gets up there and it's hitting me. <laughs> 
And I was like, is it Batson? He's like, Batson objection, Your Honor. And that ju- the judge's eyes got really big. And he kind of sat back and he goes, tell me more about this, Mr. Smith. And he thinks of things before he says them. So he didn't really have to know what to say after that, right? Because there's certain hoops you have to step through in order to, to get to a ruling on a Batson motion, right? And so Stephen kind of got himself through that. But what, what happened was, Eventually, the judge found that the other side had removed jurors based upon race, right? And so instead of putting them back on the jury, they had to do it all over again. And he put another panel up there and she did it again. The attorney did it again. And and this was a this is a pretty big law firm, right? Wasn't this one of the it was one of the biggest law firms in the country. Yes, right. So and they're they're using these tactics that might be a little bit shady, but they're opening your you guys aren't going to see we, them. We had a lot of trial experience among ourselves, and I knew exactly what the Batson was, and so I, I ended up kind of helping argue that that issue. And there's there, even the judge was had to kind of be refreshed on what the steps were in order to go through a proper Batson analysis. And, and the funny thing about that case was that when you're in federal court here in Norfolk, there is no Wi-Fi connection. So in order to find the case and to help the judge go through the steps of a Batson motion, I had to go out to my car, <laughs> to get on a hotspot on my phone, get my laptop out, type it up, and then email it from my phone, literally in the car right outside the courthouse to the judge's clerk. And then we ended up arguing the motion, and we ended up winning the motion. At the end of the day, we got a, a pretty substantial verdict for our client, and it kind of set the precedent in these low cases. Th- that case ended up getting moved because the judge recused himself for no, it's for long-winded reason. Part of it was this Batson issue. We went to trial, and the trial was about three weeks long, and we got a, a verdict. We were the first time proving mold causes brain injury, and we were brought in for the brain injury side of it, right? And so... You know, Shelly now goes around the country and advocates for, for those who have, have suffered just squalid living conditions in the military. I mean, it's it's insane. You know, part of our argument was is these people are going overseas fighting for our lives, fighting for our country, and now they have to come home and fight against the same people who put them in this housing. It's just, it was crazy. And they're still dealing with it today. I mean, it's in Congress. They're talking about how it is they deal with these contracts. This wasn't the military. They were, these were privatized housing companies who, who would manage their housing. But and that's pretty common in the military, having contractors and doing some things with private companies. Yeah, that's so. right. And because the military is not in the business of collecting rent, essentially, you know, I mean, they're, they're in the business of protecting their country. So, they, But the private company has profits in mind. They want to keep their well, costs down. Let's keep this in mind for, and this is part of our argument that we made. They they get military housing benefits and doesn't go through the families. It goes straight from the military to these private companies. It's insane. Wow. And they make billions. Imagine all the military living on base in these privatized homes, and it goes basically straight from our government to these these private companies. So you know we we're out there trying to make. These housing and th- these houses safer for these these families, the military families. I mean, imagine having your husband or even or your wife deployed, and you're dealing with three children in the house who are running around in a in a house that leaks, that has mold in it, that has bad air conditioning, you know, roaches. I mean, it's 
these cases are complex and we don't take a lot of them until they're really good cases, but there are law firms around the country who are now using that case as precedent to help make our military families safer. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one story of Stephen. The other funny story about Stephen, I tried a case in Harrisonburg, is a, again in federal court, and he was cross-examining a witness and he, he gets very excited and if you, he does everything on paper, right? So he writes everything down on a legal pad and it, he writes all his questions on a legal pad. He just scribbles them down. You can't read it. He has this legal pad in his hand and he's cross-examining. He did a really nice job of cross-examining one of these doctors and he's very real proud of himself and he kind of scurries back to the mm-hmm. council table. I'm sitting right next to him and he has one of these chairs that is, it rolls. It's like a banker's chair, but it was also on top of like a plastic sheet uh, you know what I mean? To protect yeah. the carpet. Right, yeah. So he gets back and Steven just, he's not only is smart, he has the most energy of anybody I know. And he stays up late with these cases and, and he's very well prepared. So he's got a lot of energy and he comes back to to council table and his heel hit the, hit the chair as he was sitting down. So the chair slipped out from under him and he landed right smack on his rear end. His t- all I could see is I'm looking next to him and his tie flies up. He's got this really nice tie, this colorful tie, very colorful socks. I see the bottoms of his shoes fly up in the air. And we finally got a laugh out of the jury. That was the first time we got a laugh out of the jury. And and of course, Steven gets up and he, you know, he's like, I meant to do that. Sorry, everybody. Excuse me for being you know a tornado in the courtroom. And the judge finally laughed at us. We were trying to... I actually had to leave the courtroom because I could not contain myself. I, I had to go out back, get my laughs out and come back in. So here's another quick, this is the same case and the same judge. We go on Roanoke on February 14th. What's February 14th? It's Valentine's Day, right? right. So we have a hearing on February 14th of Valentine's Day. And before the hearing, the hearing was like at 3 p.m. in Roanoke. Stephen and I drive all the way out there with a, another lawyer from Richmond. And we have lunch before the hearing, and there was some candy uh, as we left, as you leave, and it, there were candy hearts, as in Valentine said. We go, we go into the court hearing. Before the judge walks out there, Stephen puts the candy heart on the, on the judge's bench. So as the judge walks out there, a few minutes later, he looks, he looks down and looks at the candy and said, and they're just dead dry with no smile at all. And says, for the record, the judge cannot accept a candy heart from plaintiff's attorney. <laughs> knew it was from him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's just, that's how this, that, that's Stephen's way of saying, I'm here. Right. You know, I'm here. We're ready to go. That's great. And he just endears himself to these folks, and you never believe it. But some of these judges, you know, when we start these cases, case out in Cal- uh, Oklahoma, old school judge out in Oklahoma. I mean, he's looking at our case going, what in the world? This lady gets hit by a tractor trailer, and I'm, in, I, I'm trying this case for two weeks. What are we doing? And by the end of the trial, he looks at the jury and says, I know that I've learned something in this case, I hope that you guys have too. And that's what Stephen does. He, he he teaches what this does to people, traumatic brain injury does to people. Because the guy just knows everything. You can pick up a, 
You pick up any one of the medical books that we have on traumatic brain injury from the from the top doctors in his office over there, and you'll probably find fifty or sixty times that he's read every single one. It's just that kind of guy. That's the kind of person that sounds like you want if you have a real serious brain injury case, especially up against a big multi-billion-dollar corporation. And people from all over the country come find us, and you know, and around here, I'd like to see more of it. You know, I'd like to see more of these cases around here with some of the lawyers that are around here. We can help them. We can make their cases better and make their clients happier. So, David, in the Tidewater metro area, you know, I know you've been working in injury law for a long time. The firm has a great knowledge of brain injuries, spinal injuries, neck injuries, things that really impact people after car accidents. Some of these car accidents can be actually very low speed. It doesn't look like they may be seriously injured. And I feel like a lot of people are asking, well, what do I actually do after a car accident, whether it's later that day, the next day, or even a week later. But can you tell us three things that someone should do if they've been in an accident such as that. Yeah. So one of the first things I would say is seek medical treatment. Most car accidents, people don't go to the hospital. They don't go by EMS, by ambulance. But the next day they realize, holy smokes, I can't move. I can't walk. My back's hurting me. My neck hurts. Maybe it'll just get better. Go get treatment. Find a physical therapist. We we can help you if you call us. We have different referral sources to several different physical therapists that we can can at least recommend uh, that you call. But don't just shrug it off. I had a client one time that had a back injury and he ended up having back surgery. And it took a while for, for him to realize that he needed to see a doctor. The gap in time there may cause a problem later on down the road if we're worried about trying to prove to an adjuster about about the injury and, and that it was related to the crash. You also make a really good point, though. If you don't go to the doctor, there's only a, really a doctor, a medical professional can say they, they need to be able to document. Like that's, that's a good question. That's a, that's a specialist. That's that's reliable information. So well, it's also preserves the case, makes your case. It, it's also in Virginia. It's, it's what I would consider mandatory, which is not necessarily a legal term, but in order to prove causation, a medical, it must be a medical doctor who gives you a causation opinion is what we call it in the legal field, right? This calls that. The accident caused the injury, right? I can't have a physical therapist or a psychologist or somebody without an MD behind their name saying that in Virginia. So it's very important that we have that. So seeking medical advice is, is what I would recommend. Most physical therapists will send you off to a medical doctor as well, but I, I would highly recommend seeing a medical doctor. And if you don't have a physical therapist or you don't have a PCP, there are ways that, that we can help find, you know, make recommendations. The second thing is, is don't talk to your insurance company. Make a claim, but try not to get recorded. A lot of times they want to record everything you say. As a former cop and a former prosecutor, I can tell you that there are times that we, that the other side will use whatever you say against you. It goes back to Miranda. Miranda is not an issue in civil cases, but if you do make a recorded statement, at least just tell them, obviously tell them the truth, tell them that you're hurt and tell them you know that you're going to seek legal advice. The third thing is it's probably the, one of the most important besides getting medical treatment, get photos. Photos speak a thousand words. If you have bruises, they go away after time. If you have 
you know, scarring from, let's say, a surgery or something like that, those scars tend to fade over time. Take a series of photographs if you have bruising from the lap, the lap belt or the seatbelt. If your leg has bruises on your knees or if you hit something, that's, that shows a bruise. A bruise will take a day or two to show up purple and get kind of nasty. Take those pictures, even if it's in an area that you don't want to expose to everybody. I can't get those photographs back if they weren't taken. In other words, 10 months down the road, a year down the road, I can't recreate the bruising. And pictures really do speak a thousand words. I can go in and argue that you got really bruised in a case, but if I show a picture, what do I need to say? I don't need to say it. Jurors can feel it. Judges can feel it because you have a picture of it. So if it's, you know, if you have surgery, Take a picture of the sutures or, or the, um, the the surgical site. Take pictures of you in a gown or in a hospital if you can. Again, this goes back to humanizing your, your case. If I'm trying a case, it's usually two or three years down the road, especially a big case where we have to litigate it and have to do discovery and so forth. So you get hurt. These cases can take a while. And you may be at a different point in your life where you know you, you don't remember all of the ordeal that you went through when you went to the hospital. You had to wear a sling because you had shoulder surgery. And I know, I don't know from experience, but I know from other clients and, and from actually friends of mine who have had surgery on their shoulder, sleeping with, with, a, with a shoulder problem after surgery, rotator cuff repair or a label repair is terrible. <laughs> if you have machines... Let's say, uh, let's say you have crutches. Keep the crutches. If you have evidence, I had a, a, another good a good example. I tried to get on a jury trial a couple months ago. A lady was walking across the parking lot and got hit by a, a newspaper delivery driver. She was wearing a bright orange sweatshirt. Hmm. I mean, you couldn't miss it, right? And so me having that bright orange sweatshirt reduced the argument that the delivery driver could say it was dark and she's walking in the middle of the street and there's no way I should see her. She's walking in front of my car and I'm looking at the jury going, really? I mean, this is like, you know, it's like a neon sign. So she kept that sweatshirt. She kept the boots she was wearing. She got knocked out of her boots and she kept the boots that she was wearing. I showed them around in front of the jury four years after she got hit. So if you have evidence, pictures... Another thing, pictures inside the car. If the airbags deploy, give me pictures of those airbags that have been deployed. A lot of times people just take pictures of the outside of the car. Those airbags come out with a lot of pressure and they can cause your head to snap back or, or when you go in, into the airbag going forward, look, your brain is still moving in your head, right? So the whole point of those airbags is to keep you from going slamming into the to the steering wheel or even being ejected going through the windshield, right? But they will still cause you harm. So they're going to keep you alive, but they also may cause you some problems. So if you have the ability to be able to take pictures of airbags and so forth, the pictures speak a bazillion words for me. If I can get videos, I love that stuff. You know, when I was a prosecutor, I was the one guy that would walk into court with PowerPoints and all kinds of stuff that was thrown around in front of a jury. So it seems the same way. We're both visual people. That's how we try cases. So, David, you just mentioned that you like to humanize the case right, with props or videos or something that allows the jury to have no ambiguity in what they're thinking about. 
the scene or what happened or whatever it is. So I'm going to, I'm going to humanize you a little bit with this question. In your free time, you list a couple things in your bio on your website, soccer, you know, former life, maybe some squash and CrossFit. Yeah. What got you into CrossFit? My wife. There are probably not many people that say that, but if you were to meet a more competitive person on this earth, I'm not sure who that would be if it was on my wife. And so she, she coached lacrosse for many years and she just retired from, from the collegiate and now is coaching at the high school level, but she is super competitive and she was finding ways. She wanted to find ways to get exercise. She just loves to, she used to run a lot. She used to bike a lot and she found CrossFit near our house CrossFit 757 in Norfolk, John and Autumn Weiss are the owners. And, you know, she, for about a year, she would come back after the working out. I would make fun of her. I'd be like, are you going to do your AMRAP at your wad and, and, and doing all this fun stuff, doing lifting weights and so forth. And she would, she'd find, so she's like, look, you just got to come, come do one of these workouts with me. And I don't remember the first one I did. But it involved GHD, which are glute hamstring developers, this machine where you you do sit-ups on it. And I did, I almost threw my back out the first time I did it, and I really couldn't walk the next day. The great thing about CrossFit is that, and this really kind of ties into my practice, I don't like to lose. And whether it's, and the problem is, is I've got a wife that's equally competitive. And when we play Uno against my children, neither one of us want to lose Uno against our children, right? But the great, the magical thing about CrossFit is that they put your times and your scores on a board and everybody can see it, right? So you're not only competing against yourself, but you're competing against the guy next to you. And I was just making this comment to a friend of mine who, who kind of stepped out of CrossFit a little bit. And I was telling him that, you know, I was, I was competing against this guy next to me. I don't know what it was. And he was like, do you do that every time? That you, you know, I mean, every workout, do you do that every time? And I looked at him and I said, do you not do that every time? It's just the competitive edge in me, right? So I played soccer in high school. I went on and played at the collegiate level. My wife played collegiate level lacrosse. She was an All-American goalie. And, and my kids have our TNA now, right? So... There's, there's not a day where we're not competing with each other over something inside of our house, whether that's an ice cream scoop or running the dog around, whatever it is, it's something. But CrossFit just, my knees, I couldn't play soccer as much anymore because I was getting kind of older. I was playing with younger kids, younger guys, and it was wearing me out. <laughs> and I loved the game and I needed to find something to fulfill that itch. And CrossFit was it. And I just fell in love with it. And I've been doing it for about five years now. And what we do as a law firm in, in, not, in the business of law and the practice of law and trying cases and, and litigating cases every day and dealing with clients and dealing with whatever's going on outside of the office, you got to have an outlet. And I found that outlet in CrossFit and it really allowed me to, to give, if, even if, if I have a bad day, you know, walk in there and, and the one thing I'm competing with, of course, the other people around me, but I'm looking at that barbell and I'm going, I'm going to list you today. And that's the only thing I'm focused on right now. As bad as my day has been, if I lost a jury trial, if I, if, if, you know, a client was mad at me, I got yelled at by a client who, who I wasn't responding to fast enough or whatever it is, it's me and that barbell 
for you know 45 minutes to an hour and i can't tell you how important that is for mental health and so you know now it's just a habit and good habits you know nutrition is a good habit it's just it's something i carry into and i sort of I use it as a backdrop to almost everything that I do in this office. And if I get into uncomfortable situations, I can I can promise you I've never been in a more uncomfortable situation than I have been in, in a CrossFit gym. And so if I get into a, an uncomfortable situation in, a, in front of a jury or if I get into a, a situation where I, I feel like I can't work myself out of it as my one of my best friends, Jason Dodd, who's a CrossFitter as well, said to me, one rep at a time. Take it one rep at a time. And it really sort of just correlates with everything I do here. Okay, you had a bad day. You're going to take this one step at a time. And it's just, you know, it's something that I talk about all the time with clients. And, you know, being physically fit is important to me. And I pass it down to my children. You know, it also is something that I can talk with clients about, you know. It's time to get some exercise. It helps you recover. So things get pretty crazy in terms of competition, whether you're competing against yourself or the others around you while you're in these sessions. I've seen some pretty crazy CrossFit failure moments on Instagram. You got any interesting story or maybe give us a little insight into maybe a workout fail where somebody was pushing themselves to the limit to either compete against someone else or themselves and put themselves or others in a situation where they may have or may have pushed themselves too far and fallen in an awkward way and, you know, caused a TBI. Well, I actually had a friend of mine who broke his elbow coming off of trying to do a muscle up on a bar, but I flew out early in my days of doing CrossFit before. I mean, I've always been kind of careful in it, but I was a little energized. I was doing some pull-ups and, and I was doing kipping pull-ups and my hand slipped off the bar and I just went flying back. And I thought to my head, I hit my head pretty hard and, you know, it rocked my bell a little bit. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's keep an eye on what's going on there. And then, of course, it like it went from pull-ups to running. And my, I was doing it with my wife. Of course, my wife was right next to me. And and I was started to go. It was like a 400-meter run right after that. I started to try to run. And I went down the ramp. of like, I can't do this. <laughs> Man, I just crushed. I crushed my my head's dizzy. And, uh, and I just kind of took a step back. And I've cut my leg on the box before doing box jumps. You know, I've seen all kinds of stuff on Instagram where, where guys are lifting too much weight. and You know, they don't know how to bail from the bar. Our gym teaches you how to bail from a bar. And certainly I've had that time. In fact, I did it just the other day. I'll ever had squats. I had to bail under a bar. And it got pretty close to my head. And my shoulder gave out. And I'm like, I'm out. And I pushed it back. And, you know, you we're, we're pretty safe in what we do. But uh, it, it's certainly any sport. I, I can tell you this. I had more injuries playing soccer because I played in the men's league longer that I played in college and in high school, I was playing in the Miz League for probably another 20 years. And I saw guys tearing their knees and, and ankles. And I got more injuries doing that than I do in CrossFit, for sure. If you do it right, it, it's you don't get hurt. But hold on, I don't think it was a one easy yeah, uh, It's a pleasure. Super stoked to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be a part of a great organization like Ubu. We really appreciate all you guys do for our firm as well. And and let's do it again. I'll be around. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you. I want to thank David so much for joining us today. We truly appreciated him coming on and sharing his expertise. If you want to find out more about David and either the Smith Law Center or Brain Injury Law Center and the work they do related to brain injury litigation, you can visit their websites at smithlawcenter.com 
and brain-injury-law-center.com or check them out on Instagram at Smith Law Center. I want to thank all of you out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Cases for Causes and would like to support the podcast, please smash that subscribe button, share it with others, post about it on social media, and always leave us a rating or review. To catch all the latest from Obu Interactive, you can follow us on Instagram at Obu Interactive or visit us at obuinteractive.com. Thanks again, and until next time, work passionately, live peacefully.